Cigarette? No, no, I never touch her. Well, I suck them down like Coca-Cola. <laughs> well, here's to feeling good all the time. back to banter the official podcast of aei i'm matt weinsett i'm joined by the birthday boy max frost hello matt happy birthday max how are you you know it feels good to be 42 um i only heard that joke about nine times so this is take number 13 right now well yeah no good to be here thanks for uh, spending my birthday with me in this awesome radio studio at aei thanks scott gottlieb for coming on the show thanks jewel for sponsoring this episode <laughs> Who do we have on today for your birthday? Today for my birthday, we have a special guest. His name is Scott Gottlieb. And we're honored to have Dr. Gottlieb with us today. He was the chief of the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, from 2017 to 2019. Before that, he was at AEI, um, and then now since, I think, May? He's been back at AEI doing research on health issues, health policy, um, that kind of stuff. He holds an MD from Mount Sinai in New York. We wanted to talk to him about his recent column in the Washington Post on the CBD craze sweeping the nation and what the FDA should do about it, as well as e-cigarettes, vaping, and their effects on public health. He is probably one of the most knowledgeable people in the country on these issues, so we know you'll enjoy the episode. So without further ado, here is Scott. Scott, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So today we want to talk about your new op-ed in the Washington Post, uh, but also more broadly, the CBD craze and e-cigarettes, Juul, all that kind of stuff. Sounds good. Um, so to start, what's the big deal with CBD? We see it everywhere. It's in all the stores. Everyone's talking about it. But well, first of all, I, we really don't understand what, if any, benefits it offers, especially in low concentrations. There's one drug um, that's approved as a drug that's a natural derivative, a highly concentrated form of CBD that's approved in certain seizure disorders and the treatment of certain seizure disorders. But CBD has been a- being added to a lot of food products a lot of dietary supplements, also pet food. All of it's illegal right now under current law, but um, there's a bigger question of whether or not it's offering any benefit. Um, And we do know that it has certain uh, risks associated with it. CBD at high concentrations can cause liver toxicity, for example, and there may be a cumulative effect. So if you're eating CBD for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you might be getting a level that can cause um, certain toxicities. Now, the reason it's illegal is because um, under the FDA's regulation, because CBD never previously existed in the food supply and it's regulated as a drug, you can't just add it to the food supply. You have to go through a specific regulatory process. Um, And these laws were put in place for good reason because government didn't want um, food manufacturers and dietary supplement manufacturers to be sprinkling drug substances into food. Um, And so right now, if a food manufacturer wants to put CBD into a food product, it can't do it. So what you see on the market right now where CBD is being put in food or being put in pet food, and there's a lot of pet food right now that has CBD in it because there's this presumption that if you give your dog CBD before you go to work, somehow it's going to be more relaxed by the time you get home. But the CBD that's being put in human food and pet food is is illegal right now. And so the, the Post op-ed that you mentioned, the Washington Post op-ed that you referenced, was my attempt to try to sketch out a regulatory pathway um, where FDA can sort of divine and create a pathway where this these products can be both properly studied 
and safely put into um, food products, which is what manufacturers want to do. Let's take a step back for a second. You're talking to possibly at least one of maybe the two lamest people at AEI. <laughs> I have no. What is CBD? Is it a type? Is it like THC? Is it a low grade type of marijuana? I, I'm not. Why do people? Well, it's an oil it? derivative from cannabinoid oil. It's a derivative from the cannabis plant, and so it can be derived from the same plant that grows marijuana, but it can also be derived from hemp which is a low THC form of the can- cannabis plant. And the reason why this is important is because under the Farm Bill of 2018, Congress legalized a pathway for people to be able to grow hemp legally in the United States. Hemp is a, is a, um, is a product, is an agricultural product that has certain industrial uses. And it also grows in soil that's of low quality. So a lot of states that don't have um, very good agricultural industries can nonetheless have a good hemp industry. You can grow hemp in soil in Maine and, and New England. You can grow it in climates that aren't necessarily hospitable to soybeans or corn or, or tobacco or other kinds of crops like that. And so a lot of farmers want to start growing hemp. Um, the, the CBD presumably does not have THC in it. So THC is the, um, is the sort of psychoactive um, component of the cannabis plant that causes, you know, the, the, the properties associated with marijuana. So presumably CBD can be derived in with very low concentrations of THC that wouldn't, wouldn't presumably have any kind of impact on, on someone, any kind of medicinal impact. But the reality is that the CBD that's being sold in the marketplace um, isn't properly regulated, isn't properly manufactured. And so you see a lot of CBD that does have a high concentration of THC. So when people have CBD oil, CBD lollipop, CBD candy, whatever is on the market now, are they doing it trying to get high? I'm doing air quotes. You can't see because it's a podcast. Or is it just, you know, calm down? What What is the purpose here? Well, I mean, that's that's the reality of the challenge here. Um, sort of it's it's in the eye of the consumer, if you will. CBD is being marketed for so many different things, most of which is hokey and isn't substantiated by science. Um, some people are selling it because they're, they allege it has a calming effect. Some people are selling it because they allege it has some kind of therapeutic effect that's independent of THC. Some people are alleging it has, you know, other kinds of medicinal effects. People are making outlandish claims like it can treat cancer or it can treat Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease. And we sent, when I was at FDA, warning letters on the basis of companies that are making those kinds of claims. But some people are using it because certain formulations do have a high component of THC and it's a backdoor way to get, get your hands on THC. So that is going on. And in fact, we, we saw data when I was at the agency that was where CBD was being tested. And a lot of the derivatives that we were looking at that were being sold as, quote, dietary supplements, and I'm, I'm not doing air quotes, <laughs> were either very potent formulations of CBD, which could, could get into levels where you'd have certain concerns around like liver toxicity, or they had high concentrations of THC in them, and people would, would then get this sort of you know, psychoactive component of, uh, of the cannabis plant. Now, all that being said, though, if you um, look online, you said that there's one drug that's been approved by the FDA, right? Anti-seizure. Epidiolex has been approved for two two very rare pediatric seizure, seizure disorders. Okay. Um, so if it's illegal, how is it sold everywhere? Well, um, because in a world where there's a lot of bad people doing a lot of bad things, you, you have to pick and choose where you take enforcement action. Um, and, you know, when I was at the agency, we did take enforcement action against CBD. But what I sort of said was I was going to focus our resources because we have limited resources on people who are making what I would call over-the-line claims. So if you're claiming that CBD cures cancer or can treat Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease, where there might be otherwise effective available therapy for those disorders or diseases, 
and you're you're deceiving a consumer into thinking that CBD is going to be effective, that's in my view an over the line claim. You you can cause harm to that patient by deceiving them with with claims that have no basis in science. And so we did send warning letters and shut down certain manufacturers. But there's a lot of people doing it right now. Not not the big packaged food companies. It's a lot of small purveyors that are doing it. And this is one of the points they made in the Washington Post op-ed, which is that you know the big food manufacturers want to put CBD into food products largely because consumers think that there's some benefit um, and want to buy food products that have small concentrations of CBD in it. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that. People consume a lot of things that don't necessarily deliver all kinds of benefits that they might impute, but they also don't cause harm. And people have a right to to consume products that um, that they want, especially a, a food product that's not otherwise illegal. But what's happening is the the responsible manufacturers aren't going forward because they know it's illegal right now. And you have a lot of irresponsible and small purveyors that aren't following good manufacturing standards, are putting too high concentrations in their products. They're the ones flooding the market with all these products. And so what you want is a process that allows people to do this responsibly if, in fact, you know, the the sort of impetus is to allow manufacturers to do it. And I would argue when Congress legalized the growing of hemp under the Farm Bill, even though they explicitly preserved FDA's authorities to regulate CBD, I think that there was an assumption among many people who passed that bill that that in short order there would be a legal pathway to allow CBD to be put onto the market. And so Congress expects FDA to create a regulatory process. That's very clear. And the reason why this is important from an economic standpoint is because if you're a farmer growing hemp, the highest margin derivative from the hemp plant is the CBD. Okay. And so in order pro- to profitably grow hemp, you want to be able to derive all the components of the hemp plant. And most of the hemp plants used as an industrial crop. It's used for um, building literally cinder blocks or it's used in, in, in cloth. But the CBD, the oil, um, is a high-margin derivative. It's a, it's, a very, um, it's a derivative that you can sell for a lot of money. Now, it remains to be seen that if once the market's flooded with CBD, if this does become legal and you have a lot of people putting CBD on the market, does the price come down and it's no longer a high margin derivative? But right now, a lot of the people who grow hemp, what the farmers will tell you is in order to do this really profitably, we need to be able to derive the CBD and sell it. What is the end game here, do you think? I have no idea if this is similar. It reminds me of those omega-3 fish pills that people take. A great analogy. Which, all, yeah. which always say, like, not FDA approved, but by the way, it'll help with brain and your brain and your skin and whatever. And that always is like 20 bucks for like a thing of pills, which seems pretty expensive. Is CBD similar to that or is it going to be, is it, is it possibly much unhealthier if you have it every day like you would have one of those omega-3 pills? Well, there's, there's data around fish oils showing the fish oil has certain therapeutic effects. Uh, there's, there's really no data around CBD outside of the places where it's been studied in very high concentrations like the drug that's approved, Epidiolex. And there's some other data in certain um, movement disorders where there might be some, some effect from CBD, but it's still early and speculative. So I, I, I wouldn't make the analogy to say that the same level of evidence exists for CBD that it could der- could deliver sort of a general benefit to people in the same way that, you know, eating certain fish oils can. Um, but but the omega-3 is a, is a good example because that's a place where you have fish oil existing as both an additive in food and a dietary supplement and a drug in a very high concentration, properly formulated, 
um, in a way that it's delivering a benefit that's actually different than, than eating the dietary supplements. The drugs that are approved, that the sort of fish oils that are approved, are a certain formulation of fish oil where there is some evidence that that formulation in particular is going to deliver more of the positive benefits of, of consuming fish oil. It's possible that we get to the same framework with CBD where you have CBD on the market in low concentrations in food products, concentrations that aren't likely to cause any of the side effects, but probably don't have a lot of the potential benefits as well. Um, and then in, in more pure formulations and higher concentrations, you have it existing as a drug product. So there are places where you can have something exist as both a food and a drug. What you don't want is to create a backdoor that allows people to sprinkle Viagra or, you know, Cialis into food. And in fact, people have tried to do that. I mean, is we've sent... Is that a risk? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually it is. I mean, those, those drugs have really clear risks associated with them. Um, you know, and people have tried... No, but I mean, is it a risk that people are putting that in the, in the food Well, people, right people actually are. I mean, we, you know, at, at, when I was at FDA, we sent warning letters against people who would sell dietary supplements where it was really the active ingredients in, in Cialis, but they were selling it as a dietary supplement, and that's obviously illegal. But, but what you don't want is to create a framework for CBD that then creates a backdoor that other people can exploit to try to put f drug substances into food products. And so whatever we do here with CBD, it has to be unique to CBD. If Congress expects there to be a pathway to get CBD into the food supply and into dietary supplements, we need to craft it in a way that it doesn't create a, a gaping hole in the regulatory framework where you have all these active pharmaceutical ingredients being put into food that can create all kinds of risks to consumers and, and, and really deceive consumers to thinking they're getting a health benefit when they're, they're not. Okay, so yeah, real quick before we switch to the e-cigarette topic, which is of great interest to me, um, <laughs> as an avid vapor, I'm, I, I just think it's I think it's interesting. But um, so what's the what's the timeline on what's the timeline on this? When could we expect to see some kind of clear regulation or when will AEI start putting CBD in our food every day? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, hopefully not as long as I'm here. Um, <laughs> you know, I, it's unclear. I mean, what I was trying to do in Washington Post was sketch out a timeline that I think is is a little bit more expedient because I think otherwise the timeline could be very long. And I think from a political standpoint, Congress, I think Congress will at some point get impatient here. So what, what I outlined was that what, what FDA can do is put the onus on the manufacturers to demonstrate through petitions. Right now there's a process where you can file a petition with the FDA to say that you want to add a new dietary ingredient to food or dietary supplement, new food additive ingredient. Um, so put the onus on the manufacturers to file petitions with the agency demonstrating that this could be safely put into food products, which is something manufacturers can do. And in the meantime, the FDA can say that they're going to exercise enforcement discretion so they can allow people to go to market with products that have CBD in it as long as those products adhere to a certain set of guidelines that the FDA outlines. Um, it has to be uh, subject to good manufacturing practices. You have to manufacture it appropriately. It has to be below a certain concentration. Um, you know, right now we don't know what that safe concentration is, We can't, but we kind of know, we, we know the bounds, if you will. We know what's really too high and we know what's low, and so, but we don't know what's in the middle. So if you want to be safe, you pick something that's low. Um, you would subject them to good track and trace requirements to make sure no THC is being added to the CBD. So FDA can outline in a guidance document all of those um, requirements that would be the components of an enforcement discretion policy. And then it can say, well, if you meet all these sort of presumptive requirements, you can go to market. We're not saying you're illegal, but we won't take enforcement action against you as long as you meet these requirements. FDA does that all the time. We, the agency would exercise enforcement discretion in certain cases where you didn't have 
clear policies in place, and then you'd come in and establish the policies. Um, the challenge for doing that from a regulatory standpoint, and the reason why the agency is historically reluctant to adopt these kinds of frameworks is because it becomes sometimes it becomes politically hard to then go back and say, okay, time's up. You know, we we were exercising enforcement discretion and you didn't meet the standards and now you're coming off the market because then you've created a vast market with a strong political constituency that doesn't want to be taken off the market. Um, and that's why I think it's important to have simultaneous to that the pathway that outlines, well, how they can stay permanently on the market. And you say, well, you know, if you want to be on the market, you can do it as long as you meet these requirements. But by X date, you have to have filed that petition with us. And by X date, it has to be approved. And so you give them a hard, you give manufacturers a hard deadline when they have to meet the higher standard. Okay. Is that too wonky? No, no, it's good. We have very intelligent listeners, so hopefully not. (laughs) (laughs) But but now 30% of the listeners' brains are boiling, (laughs) but the rest are liking it. They need some CBD to calm down. (laughs) Uh, All right. We want to talk to you about e-cigarettes, which seem to always be in the headlines during your tenure at FDA. What is going on with e-cigarette regulation right now, and are they? how do they compare health-wise to normal cigarettes? Well, if you can fully switch a currently addicted adult smoker onto an e-cigarette, you're going to have a, a health benefit for that adult smoker. Um, there's no question that they're less harmful than combusting tobacco, but less harmful doesn't mean risk-free, and there are risks associated with e-cigarette use. When I came into the agency in 2017, I outlined a policy um, that we announced in summer 2017 where we sought to regulate nicotine in combustible cigarettes to reduce the nicotine levels to render the combustible cigarettes minimally or non-addictive. And then we extended application deadlines on the e-cigarettes to give manufacturers more time to come in to file for approval for e-cigarettes because the law said that they had to file applications with the agency. And the reason we did that was twofold. Number one, at the time that we were trying to regulate nicotine in the combustible products to try to more rapidly migrate adult smokers off of combustible tobacco, we saw the e-cigarettes as a potentially less harmful alternative for adults who still wanted to consume nicotine, still wanted to do it through an inhaled route, but didn't want all the risks associated with combustion. The other reason we did it was because at the time that we were implementing that regulation and, and we were obligated by law to implement it, we hadn't put in place all of the guidance and regulation outlining how you file applications with the agencies. So these were products that were newly regulated by FDA because of laws that were passed by Congress, but FDA hadn't yet put in place the architecture, if you will, on how they would be regulated. I I sort of inherited a work in progress. And so that was the policy that we, we went forward with. What happened in 2018, uh, I remember the date, August 30th, 2018, I was presented with data from the 2018 National Youth Tobacco Survey showing that there was a dramatic spike in the um, youth use of e-cigarettes, driven primarily by Juul, fully a 78% increase in the number of high school juniors and seniors uh, using e-cigarette products, which was a dramatic increase year over year, and a, a growth also in the numbers that were reporting regularly use, and also a slight uptick in, in youth smoking of combustible products. Not a statistically significant rise, but a rise nonetheless. This was a dramatic change. It was the biggest um, biggest one-year change in the history of the surveys that were done looking at youth use of um, substances of addiction. Um, the biggest change ever recorded in history, um, year over year. And so that that required us to change course. And what we sought to do, you know, we we went out, we called it an epidemic of youth use of e-cigarettes and nicotine, which I I believe it is. And we sought to implement policies to reduce the access and appeal of these products to kids by putting in place 
heightened age verification requirements for the sale of the e flavored e-cigarettes um, in stores. And because we, we recognize that we didn't want to take these off the market. We think they are a potentially viable alternative for currently addicted adult smokers. But at the same time, we need to do something to address the most accessible and appealing products to kids. And they were, by and large, the flavored products. And they were also the cartridge-based products, the disposable cartridge-based products, products like Juul. The open tank vaping systems where you literally have a big battery and you, you open it up by screwing off a top on it and you pour liquids in. Those are called open tank vaping systems. Those aren't um, being widely used by kids. It's really the, the small cartridge-based products that are. So after I graduated college, I went overseas. Last year? Like a, three, <laughs> three years ago. Went overseas for a year and a half. And before I left, I had seen e-cigs, but like not, it wasn't common. It was and, always just dude with beards and they leave that huge cloud of white smoke. That's yeah, vaguely it, it, was, it was like a joke. And then when I got back, everybody was doing it. I mean, like, I've, like it, it was The jewel's insane. taken. Like, I mean, I, do you see this, too, with, like, people in their early 20s where people that never smoked before suddenly decide to buy a jewel because it's, I don't know, a novelty, and then next thing they know, they're addicted? Because maybe that's just anecdotal, but I know multiple people. So, the you know, the refrain among critics of, of what we did was that, well, the kids aren't, quote, regular users. They're just, they're reporting that they used it in the last 30 days, but they're, they're occasional users. But the reality is that if you look at the beginning of any epidemic, and this is, in my view, an epidemic of youth use of these products, it doesn't start with regular use. It starts with occasional use that becomes regular use. If you look at the patterns of opioid addiction, people who are heavily addicted to opioids didn't start by using heroin every day. They started by, you know, occasionally using Percocet or Vicodin recreationally at a party. Then they used it more regularly. Then they started crushing it and maybe snorting it. Then they moved on to harder drugs. Then they eventually migrated on to heroin. There's a pattern to addiction. So people who, kids who are using um, nicotine through Juul, maybe on weekends at parties, a lot of them, if you follow them longitudinally, in two or three years, you're going to find a lot of regular users. What we're seeing is the beginning of an epidemic, and that's why this is so pernicious. Um, it has taken off in popularity, and I don't think this is just a cult fashion where, you know, it's like Pokemon cards or something that's popular now, and next year it won't, it'll be something else, because it's not just a consumer product. It's a consumer product that's delivering a substance of addiction. Mm -hmm. People aren't going to just be able to say, well, this isn't fashionable anymore. I'm going to go on to the next fashionable thing because they're going to be addicted to the nicotine. And it's highly addictive. It's highly concentrated. Juul, in particular, the, the pharmacokinetics of it are, are very similar to a cigarette. That's why it's popular with adult smokers. But it's also why it's so potentially addictive to kids. It delivers a high dose of nicotine very rapidly to the brain. So w what is the health risk with e-cigarettes and Juul in particular? Multifold. I mean, first of all, some proportion of, of kids who become addicted to nicotine through e-cigarettes will become smokers. We know that. They're more, the data now shows they're more likely to smoke. Nicotine does have an effect on the developing brain, uh, the ad adolescent um, brain. But, but the e-cigarettes themselves are not risk-free. There are constituents in them that still cause harm to airway tissue. Um, there's now, you know, accumulating data in both humans, but also in animal studies, toxicology studies, that show changes to tissue that could be consistent with what we call dysplasia, which is sort of pre-malignant changes. Now, I, the risks are significantly lower with using an e-cigarette than combusting tobacco. There's no question about that, that these are less harmful than smoking cigarettes. And if it, you can get an adult to switch to an e-cigarette, you can have a very significant, and I think it's fair to say significant, 
public health impact on that person's life. But that doesn't mean that they're safe and doesn't mean they're risk-free. And so, you know, you worry about kids who are getting initiated on these and are going to become long-term users who might not otherwise use, have used any tobacco product. Now, that said, there's going to be a certain proportion of the population that uses nicotine, experiments with nicotine, uses it recreationally. And so if the people who would have initiated on cigarettes are now initiating on an e-cigarette, that too is positive. But I think what we're seeing now with the amount of youth use is that these aren't people who would have smoked anyway, and now they're just using a vaping product instead. These are, these are kids who never would have smoked but they see the e-cigarettes as something different. So they're initiating on something that they might not otherwise have used, and now they're opening themselves up to a lifetime of addiction to nicotine, all the risks associated with vaping, the risk that they become long-term smokers of combustible cigarettes, where in, in any ordinary environment, but for the existence of this product and its popularity with kids, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have subjected themselves to any of those risks. And that's what you worry about because, you know, these are kids, and, and, and you have to, I think, from a public health standpoint, um, overweight that youth initiation, youth use, when you're assessing the overall public health uh, impact of these products. Remember the, and I'll, I'll pause here, but remember the the law, and the Congress passed this law, and it was broadly bipartisan, a very bipartisan vote. The law says FDA has to look at the net public health benefit when assessing these products. Net public health benefit isn't just the benefit um, to adults if you can get those adults to switch. It's also the risks associated if you're addicting a whole bunch of kids on nicotine. Yeah, just... I don't, again, I don't have the data in front of me, but just of people I know, my younger my younger brother and people and his friends, this just they would never pick up a cigarette, but the jewel is for some reason seen as something right, totally the, different. We've stigmatized smoking in this country, especially among young people, and you saw smoking rates coming down for year after year after year. That same stigma wasn't attached to these vaping products. Now, part of what I did when I was at the agency was we went out with some pretty hard hitting public service um, campaigns targeted to youth about the risks associated with these cigarettes um, to try to, you know, identi- identify it for them and, and attach some stigma uh, to it because of the health risks that we perceive for kids. And we were very careful when we were doing those th- that advertising to target it towards kids. We geofenced around schools or places we knew uh, kids would be. We put it on websites and, and places where young people go. We actually held off on putting it on TV, even on shows that we know are only um, likely to be watched by by youth because we didn't want to bleed over into the adult population because we didn't want to discourage adults from using these same products. That's going to have an impact, I think, on on kids' perceptions of these products, but uh, but that's going to, it's going to be a slow um, process of trying to educate kids about the risks associated with these. We're just about out of time, so final question. Is that the best? So we obviously had a very huge reduction in cigarette use. And was that mainly driven by public education and campaigns? And is that the way forward for vaping as well? Or is it going to have to be more punitive things like syntaxes and outright prohibition? Well, I think on, on the combustible side, a lot of things contributed to the decline in smoking. I think there was more of an awareness of the health risks. I think there was a stigma attached with smoking. I think a lot of the, the laws that were passed, taxes and you know, no smoking laws indoors and other places like that, um, diminished uh, youth, youth access and youth use and also adult use. We see smoking, um, smoking rates declining among adults year after year after year. Um, and some of that is adults switching to e-cigarettes. So the e-cigarettes, I do believe, are having a positive impact on these trends. I think with, with respect to the kids, we're going to have to see what the 2019 National Youth Tobacco Survey shows. I think if we see another uptick in youth use, we're going to have to look at whether or not the cartridge-based products in particular have enough redeeming public health value to continue to be sold the way they're being sold. I think those are the ones that are 
you know, unfortunately being most widely abused by kids. And I say unfortunately because they also are being used by adults. They're more accessible. They're a lower price point. The typical pattern you see for an adult is they'll experiment with a cartridge-based product and then they'll migrate onto an open tank system when, they make, when they're willing to make the investment in vaping and they become vapors as opposed to being smokers. So, so they do have you know, some, some benefits potentially for adults, but I think we're ha- going to have to ask the hard question of whether or not these should continue to be on the market subject to going through the regulatory process. Remember, and I'll close here, all of these products are on the market right now illegally. These products are all on the market subject to, again, enforcement discretion by FDA. FDA is allowing these products to stay on the market, but really they shouldn't be on the market until they file successful applications and get approved by the agency. So at any time, the agency can change this enforcement policy based on public health data or other information it has. So if the youth rates go up again, and we know that the kids are primarily abusing the cartridge-based products, the FDA can... And I think perhaps should change this enforcement policy with respect to those products and consider taking certain products that are being most widely abused by kids off the market until the manufacturers do what they're obligated to do under the law. And Congress passed this law on a broadly bipartisan basis. And what they're obligated to do is file an application and get approved by the agency. That's the law. That's what the law says right now. All right. I'll have to end it there. Scott, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you all for listening. We hope that you enjoyed If you did, or if you didn't, as always, like, rate, subscribe, tweet, Pinterest. Email. You know where to email. find us. iTunes, Stitcher. You, we, you hate hearing this. Banter at AEI.org is the email address. Yeah. Actually, that doesn't matter. We got an email from a Paul Woody last time. Thank you, for Paul, for writing in, who mentioned how ironic it was that in a whole episode about neoconservatism and why it's a slur now, we did not once stop to define neocon with Gary Schmidt. Yeah, I thought that when we were doing it, but I have to say, uh, Mr. Woody, you did call us academics. And that is true, and there's nothing <laughs> academical about us. <laughs> and I'm, I am you. flattered by that. You didn't stop to define academic. Because <laughs> it does not <laughs> encompass us. No, I, I, I think, yeah, he's, he's more or less right. It's tough to define. Neocon's a slippery term. It's tough yeah, to define. I, I think kind of the issue with, with it was that like I think Gary May said this at one point, where any definition he would give, another neocon would object to. So it's really, on one hand, it's a label people put on themselves. On the other hand, it's a label people use as a slur. Yeah, and also, like, the original definition had nothing to do with foreign policy. It was about usually former Trotskyites. It was like, there's this whole, seriously, you're looking at me very skeptically. No, it started with, like, Irving Crystal was one of them. He and some other guys were an alcove two at the City University of New York in like the 1930s, and they were Trotskyists. And they had a huge oh. fight with the people in alcove one who were Stalinists. And what? Yeah, really. I always thought it was liberals who had been robbed by democracy. That's what they said. <laughs> what? <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. Liberals who had been robbed by reality is what I... Mugged by reality. Mugged by reality. Yeah, and then, so they, people, the, it evolved, the, the quote was, a neocon is a liberal who is mugged by reality, and a neoliberal is a... Someone who's mugged by reality but refuses to press charges, <laughs> which I like that one a lot. Like, but yeah, no, they were they were Trotskyists, and then Trotsky, like Bolsheviks, like yeah, like commies. commies, yeah. And then after World War II, there's a Irving Crystal wrote a great like personal essay about kind of his journey. He ended up writing for a magazine I think called Encounter that came out later was funded by the CIA a little bit, and over time he just. It's, it's especially happened in the 60s when they saw the all the student rebellions going on in college and like all the countercultural stuff and they realized that no you know what they've kind of been conservative this whole time and then it wasn't until the socialist writer i think michael harrington was his, was his name applied the label neocon to people like urban crystal and then eventually it got 
pinned on Senator uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who's a Democrat. And it was mainly, they were defined mainly by their, they brought a certain like social scientific rigor to criticisms of the great society and the welfare state. And they say you don't learn anything as a political theory major. Yeah. Well, I learned this kind of on my own. Just reading, <laughs> uh, I, I do actually really recommend, there's two books, The Neoconservative Persuasion and Neoconservatism, The Autobiography of an Idea are just two different books of essays of Urban Crystal. Highly recommend. You learn a lot about this. But like the shocking thing is they they never talk about foreign policy. Like Urban Crystal mm-hmm. even says on Vietnam, they went neocons went every which way. And it was really all about just their like domestic policy. They call it, they had like a millerist point of view where it was just like trying to improve things gradually, just do what you can. And it was all about domestic policy. Huh. And now, nowadays, though, now it's tough to define because now it's like, oh, you're a neocon. You love the Iraq war. You love perpetual warfare. And like that really had nothing to do with the original definition. No. So, yeah, Mr. Woody, to go back to your uh, definition of neocons, I'm sorry we didn't define it, but as you can tell, it's very slippery, and the definition seems to change by the decade. But you know what they all used to fight about in Alcove 1 and Alcove 2? The jewel versus the vape. What is superior? I, I, like, I learned some new terms from it. What was the thing about opening up a vape and pouring the yeah, they, he, open, open like, canister? Open versus closed. Yeah, like yeah. The closed is the cartridge base, like the jewel. You know, you finish your mango jewel pod, you put in a new pod. That's a closed yeah. cartridge base system. Versus all the hipster bros with the beards have the yeah. the the open where they just pour more whatever in there and you know there's nothing i see people all the time and it's like you're sitting in like a movie theater or you're sitting in a restaurant and some dude's in there hitting his vape and they are you allowed to do that inside i don't well that's the thing nobody knows if you're allowed to do it or not no i that happens to me on the way to work are you ever walking to work and you're behind some bro with a vape and then they let out all this cloud of white smoke and there's this fruity odor just well i'll say what's, what's weird is you like brace yourself to be like oh this is going to be bad <laughs> and you walk through and it smells really good i know it's like it juice smells like gum a little laundry bit. out yeah. yeah like i don't mind it i it, it i you know to bring it back to what we were saying last week millennials <laughs> These jewel things, you have all these people, I, I, one of you guys said it in the podcast, who would never be smoking. Yeah. And it's like people who would not come within 10 feet of a cigarette. And now all of a sudden it's cool for them to be vaping. And it's like, first of all, of course it has some kind of negative, negative health effect. You're inhaling burn. Have you, I mean, have you ever vaped? I've jeweled, yeah. Yeah. I, I'll, sorry, I'll, sorry, Scott. If you're I'll, <laughs> I don't think I've ever jeweled, but I have used the other ones, the open, yeah, the, whatever yeah. it's called in FDA parlance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, and it's burning hot. It's burning hot. It's not like some soothing, like, I don't know what I'm breathing in. It's like a soothing smoke. But. Yeah, no, and I don't, I, I don't even know. Maybe I'm just doing it wrong. I, don't, I never felt like I got much out of the jewel anyway. Like, the minty flavor is kind of tasty, I guess. But, yeah, if you do too much, then you just you have a nicotine addiction all of a sudden. And it's like, what, what are you gaining <laughs> cool from this? cool now. Yeah, oh, so cool, obviously. But, no, I see this, like, in, in like younger people, like, high schoolers, like my brothers in college. I see it when, like, I see his friends. Your, your brother they, Jules? I'm pretty sure my brother Jules, yeah. Who was buying him those Jules when he was in high school? <laughs> well, he's over 18, so he's allowed. Okay. He's in college, yeah. It's just cool now. And, like, kind of how I guess cigarettes used to be cool growing up. Yeah, it's you, cool you, to Jewel. Yeah, you saw John Wayne with a cigarette. Now you see whoever's Jeweling and you think is sick. Who is Jeweling? Are, are there, like, famous people who are Jeweling? I don't or is know. Or just a bunch of, like, maybe one of the Jenners dumbass or kids? <laughs> I don't know if we're allowed to say dumbass on the show, and now the censors are down here pulling us out of the studio, so uh, we'll see you next week if we're still on the air. Pass me the jewel.